we are in a war. We are in a war. It's a war for our soul. Individually, it's a war for our own individual soul inside, ruled by our hearts. It's a war for our marriages. It's a war for our households and our families. Corporately, it's a war for our church and every local church that proclaims the name of Jesus. It's a war for our community. It's a war for our nation, and it's a war for the nations. Friends, we are in a war. It's a very serious war. And the war takes place on three realms or fronts. The flesh, the world, and Satan's dark kingdom. Galatians makes it very clear that the war is going on inside of us. Our flesh, our carnal nature, wars against the things of the Spirit. I don't need to go out there to find war. All I have to do is look in here and I find war. Now, we get this one. We know what it's like to be trapped with our carnality and our fleshly desire. It's a battle. The systems of this world are set up against God. We've come to take a lot of confidence in the systems, but they are all outside of the kingdom of God. That's why John wrote in his letter, he said, do not love the world or the things of the world. He's not using it in the sense of the beauty of creation. He's not using it in the sense of people in creation, but he's using it in the sense of the systems that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Every earthly system is contrary to the kingdom of God. It may have elements of the kingdom in, but they're all contrary to the kingdom of God. That's why John says, everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And we have a dark kingdom that's doing battle against us. Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, and we know from other passages he knew there was a battle in his flesh. He says the battle outside of us is not against flesh and blood, other people. The battle is against principalities and powers and cosmic authorities over this present darkness. Friends, we are in a war. If I were not to say that to you very clearly as a pastor, I would be like a mayor in Florida standing on the beach last night and saying to his people, come on out, let's have a picnic. We would consider that cruel and deceitful. As your pastor, I want you to know we are in a war. It's intense and it's coming against you. It's coming against all of us. We should not be surprised because our faith is rooted in Jesus Christ and revealed to us in this word, and this word is filled with understanding about that war. Northrop Fry said this, the style of the Bible is battlefield rather than cloister. The style of the Bible is battlefield rather than cloister. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest minds of the last century and considered one of the top ten writers, said this, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That means the war is insidious and it's all around us. If we live with peacetime mentality, we will spiritually die. We need to know that we are at war. The people who received this letter originally, they're called the Hebrews, knew intensively how real the war was even more than us. 
when they heard the call to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus, literally all hell broke out against them. Because of naming the name of Jesus, they lost their families, they lost their work, they lost their communities, they were people in exile. If we read this scripture from a peacetime mentality, we will miss the whole point. And in declaring that Christ is greater than, Christ is greater than everything we're going to see, that only makes absolute sense when you understand that you're in war. Pastor Nathan set us up well last week and how that first chapter points to the divinity of Christ, that He is the radiance of the glory of God, and that the greatest thing that you could see, the most magnificent thing you could experience for the people who are receiving this letter that was manifestations of angels, all of those things shrink in comparison to the glory of Jesus. All of them do, which is interesting because many of those things are our fascinations in this world in which we live. And now, the writer of Hebrews moves us to the humanity of Jesus to show us that Christ is greater than the devil. And we need to know the backdrop of the story to understand how significant that is. Hebrews 2, uh, I wish we had about 10 hours. As you were listening to the scripture read this morning, I can sure that you felt the complexity of where this is going to go. It's a continuation of chapter 1. It begins with this word, therefore. It's telling us to be uh, vigilant because we are in a war. But I'm going to focus in on two verses because it's important for our theme this morning. Verses 14 and 15. You can pull your Bible out if you want to see them. It's very significant for the journey we're in. Since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, the humanity of Jesus. Now this is very important and the church has wrestled with this at different times. I think it's easier for us to get our minds around the divinity of Jesus than get our minds around the humanity. And I think the church has struggled the most with this throughout the the centuries. So let me just do a little bit of theologizing with you. I'm going to take you into deep waters, get your shoes off. We're going on to holy ground. We're going on to place that will be mystery to us. We will not understand it anymore, but if we will allow God to reveal it to us, it will change everything about our reality. So Holy Spirit, reveal now. Jesus is the God-man. He is always God, and He is always man. He's not a hybrid, sometimes being God and sometimes being man. When He's on the cross, He's the God-man. When He's operating on this earth and He's doing things to point to the kingdom, He's the God-man. Everything about him is that. He is God because he does not have an earthly father. The scripture tells us that Mary received this in revelation from an angel, that she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she conceived by the mighty power of God. That is God's representation in the God-man perspective. 
but he was completely human. He had all of the constrictors of being in a womb. He had to be birthed. He had to grow up. Scripture talks about him growing in influence with God and with man. He knew everything about the reality that we're in. We're going to preach next week about an aspect of that, of him understanding, but I want you to understand it this morning for the work that he's going to do because the importance of him being the God-man is that he's going to stand not only to identify with the struggle that we're in, but he's going to be the substitute so that we get victory over sin. When God needs to deal with the problem of sin and His holiness, He can't wink at it and simply wipe it away. He has to penalize it. He has to take, uh, take it apart. And there was no way that you and I could do that. We could not do enough. We could not merit. Scripture says that even our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. And so what does God do? He comes in the form of the God-man, representing the God side and the man side, so that He can bring us together, and He stands in our place as a substitute for our sins. This is extremely important. This is the message that I wanted to preach today, but Nathan put the theme, Christ is greater than the devil, so I have to deal with the devil. (laughs) Gotcha. I was waiting for that one to come in there. Uh, I said I was going to do two verses. Let's just go back and do two verses because they're really important to where we're going here. Verses 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus Christ, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, he's not martyred, he's crucified. Big distinction there. And he's not crucified like anyone else, he's crucified as the God-man representing between God and man. He's reestablishing the relationship. I know this is hard to get our minds around. I can tell you I've been preaching this for almost 40 years and I still don't understand it completely, but God reveals it to me and it sets me free from being the one who would pay the penalty for my own sin. Goes on in verse 10 and says this, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He comes as the representative standing between. The first Adam fails. He is now the second Adam. This is important. This is deep waters. This is the core of our faith, of where we are at. And then it says why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus takes on sin and death on that cross because you and I could not take on sin and death on our own and becomes the victor. Death was in the hands of the devil. Now, I'm going to have to do some teaching here this morning. Enlightenment philosophy has led us to secularism which has made Satan into a cartoon figure who has a pitchfork and horns. And in so doing, has taken away a knowledge of the reality of a kingdom of darkness that's going against us. One of the worst things we can do is to put our heads in the sand while the enemy is coming. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters said this, Satan wins when you give him too much attention and he wins when you don't give him enough attention. 
And our error in the society in which we live is that most people just don't believe in the devil. I've had Christians say that to me. Well, Jesus believed in the devil. He talks about the devil as being the one he saw falling from heaven with lightning. In fact, everything about the incarnation is wrapped up in darkness trying to stop the light coming forward. There's a reason that John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When Jesus is born, genocide breaks out. The holy family has to go in exile and hiding to fulfill God's plan. When Jesus is baptized, he's not even dry from being baptized. The Holy Spirit is sending him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus deals with Satan because the first Adam failed. Now the new Adam is going to have to prove victorious because who's going to be offered on the cross cannot go there with sin. He's the lamb without blemish. His ministry begins in Capernaum. He walks into the synagogue, a holy place, and the first person to address him is a demon. Out of the man, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, we know who you are. Have you come here to destroy us? Even demons know Scripture because in 1 John, it says the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. This wasn't even written down yet, and the demons knew what was happening and what the purpose was. Jesus then goes about healing people and casting out demons. He distinguishes at times between healing and when the source of the disease is demonic. When he trains his disciples up, he gives them the same power to go out and do the things that he's been doing. And when his identity is fully revealed in the moment that he's making himself known to his disciples, when Peter recognizes him as the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus says to him, that was revealed to you by the Father, and says this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He wasn't speaking figuratively there. He was speaking about the spiritual journey that we are in, that we are pressing against darkness. Then he tells Peter how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through the cross. And what does Peter say? No, no, no. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. When Jesus sends his disciples out, he says, I'm sending you as the Father has sent me. And he prays this great high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, the devil is real. The Bible has a robust theology. Hear this in the right way. I don't think you can believe in Jesus and not believe in the devil. Because the Jesus you're believing in is a creation of your own imagination. Because Jesus believed in the devil. He did battle against the devil. He went all the way to the cross because the devil was the author of death. And had it in his hands. Now let me remind you what Scripture says. It's here so clearly Satan, the adversary, is listed 54 times. The devil means the slanderer 34 times in the Scripture. He's also called Lucifer. He's called Beelzebub, the old serpent, the great dragon. He's the prince of this world and the prince of the air. He's the god of this age. John says it this way, the whole world is under his control. Now, this isn't a part of the sermon. I'm just going to box this out. You don't have to pay for this. Your offering didn't contribute to this at all. Um, I've heard a lot of things on the internet this week about how God is sending hurricanes to Texas and Florida. Okay, I, I don't know all that God does, but here's my suggestion. If the whole world is under the control of the evil one because we gave up rule and dominion when we fell... Maybe it's Satan who's sending the storms, and the reason they're landing is because we're not standing in our authority as Christ followers. 
I get tired of internet theology. Okay, I'm back to the regular sermon. (laughs) Peter says that he's like a roaring lion, and he writes that to Christians. He's the evil one. The word used there is paragon. He's the, the vilest of all. He's the spirit working among the sons of disobedience. And we know from Scripture that he's a fallen angel. He's underneath God. He's been active in all of history. And as best we can tell, out of the myriads of angels that exist, a third of them followed him. I'll come back to it again. You may be saying, well, Pastor, I'm back from vacation and you're telling me this? (laughs) I would be cruel if there was a person at your back door with a gun and I didn't call you and say that that person was there. His work is to oppose the work of God To show you how vile it is, he uses temptation on one side and accusation on the other. He says, come try this, come try this, this is really good. You idiot, why did you take that, why did you take that? Come try this, come try this, this is really good. Wow, Uh, this is how he works. He blinds people to the light of the gospel, and yet he's the angel of light using guile and deceit. He's a liar and a murderer. He's overt, covert, blatant, and crafty. He leads a kingdom. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for every one of you individually. He has a plan for your families. He has a plan for this church. He has a plan for the communities that we live in. He has a plan for our nation. And he's winning in a lot of places. You have a worthy foe. The reason I emphasize this is because we want to emphasize the other side of this. Christ is greater than the devil. He beat him completely. Scripture makes it very clear in Colossians 2 that while he was nailing our sins to the cross, he was triumphing over him, making him a public spectacle. So now the question comes, why does it feel like darkness is winning? Whether it's in your own flesh, all the places you wandered this week, For it's the systems of this world in which we live in, or some of you have felt the closeness of darkness. What is going on? I think there's an answer earlier in this text. Verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That almost seems contradictory. So it makes me press into the the concept of what's going on. He has secured the war victory, but he is being made Lord through the battles that we are winning in the time in which we exist. To use the language that Pastor Nathan pointed out to us last week, He is seated at the right hand of God and every power and dominion and authority is underneath his feet. But as the writer of of Hebrews quotes two different times, he's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. We live in the in-between times and God has commissioned us to be the ones who execute his victory for the people around us. Darkness always wins when light doesn't stand up and do what it's supposed to do. 
that is the only time darkness wins. I want to say this right. The American church is on a carnival cruise and God wants us to be on a warship. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So what's my so what this morning? Christus Victor. Christus Victor. I do not talk about the enemy so that he gets glory. I talk about the enemy so I can stand up Jesus before him to declare that greater is Christ than the devil. So if there are any spirits listening on and getting delight out of this, we want you to know that we are lifting Jesus up now. It is the reason he came and he won that victory on the cross. Now, isn't that really odd? If there's anything that suggests that we live in an upside-down kingdom and being the followers of God, it's this idea that he somehow triumphed on the cross. How was he ever making a spectacle of the enemy while he was there being nailed to the cross? If there was ever a time that it seemed like darkness was winning, that would be the time. He had been disowned by religious leaders. Even his disciples abandoned him. He was ex executed by the imperial Rome. And it was your and my sin that nailed him to that cross. We were accomplices in the whole process. And he died. The Bible is meticulous. He didn't swoon, he died. His blood grew cold. There were no vital signs. Life was out of him. He was, a, he was a cold body on a slab. Think about it. How is that victory? How is it that Jesus is the only name out of the tens of thousands of people that were crucified that we know today? Because it wasn't just a man who was being martyred so that we would have an example of martyrdom. It was the one who was standing in the gap for us as the God-man so that we would have victory. Creation groaned. It got dark. Even creation is groaning today. I wonder if the hurricanes are the groaning of creation for the redemption of the sons and daughters of man. Heaven gasped. You know, the angels aren't omniscient. They don't know everything. They only get it as God reveals it. I have a tendency to believe that the angels were not even expecting it to turn out this way. I think they were at poised position when the Father was going to say, go get him off the cross now. They gasped. Heaven turned its face away from him. Father, why have you forsaken me? And I believe that Satan chuckled. I think in his vile, confused state, he actually thought he had won. But it was in that very moment that God was executing his plan for all of eternity because crucifixion is followed by resurrection. When Jesus could do nothing for himself in his body, he was often spirit preaching to the people in hell. When he could do nothing for himself in his body, the very power of God went in and raised him from the dead. 
And heaven was preparing a coronation for him that he would go back to the place where he would begin. And the way he gets there is ridiculous. He gets there through suffering in the cross. Philippians 2, the earliest hymn we have from the church, declares it this way. Even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Somehow he takes his divine prerogative, always being God, not giving up that status at all, but he puts his divine prerogative on the shelf and he enters into the fullness, taking on the likeness of humanity. He becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And I say to darkness, sit down. So friends, live as brothers and sisters of Christus Victor. I don't know why God has given Satan a long leash. Since Jesus has already done it, I would just expect him to wrap everything up. People ask me why. I'll give you the theological reason why I believe this is so. I don't know. It's a mystery to me. What I do know, it's kind of like what used to happen in Africa when we'd cut the head off of a snake the tail would rattle around for a long time. Jesus has already stomped on this enemy snake, that ancient serpent of old, and his tail is just waiting around. And all I can assume is that God has given us the privilege of becoming overcomers so that we will reign with Christ. The very thing we gave up at creation, he's giving back to us and we need to be trained in it. So he's allowing Satan to have this time so that we would become the Christ people that we were meant to be. Princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. That's all I can assume. So in loving you as a pastor, I'm saying, get off the carnival ship and get on the warship. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Get equipped. I know a really good book. It's called The Bold Christian. (laughs) Fathers, mothers, if you want the soul of your family, learn to walk in this. If you're battling your flesh and you're giving Satan a foothold and it's slowly becoming a stronghold, get a hold of this. It's not good enough to try to convince yourself to be a holy person. You need to preach to your soul and you need to preach with authority because your flesh runs rampant. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Because my flesh runs rampant. And I don't say this to be sensational. We have a nation that's going to hell. Maybe it's God's grace that he sent these storms so we quit being so rank with one another and start serving one another.
I didn't know how to finish this sermon. The Lord gave me a reminder during the first service, and I'm hoping it brings it to where you are in the everyday. When we were in Albertville, France to study French, we were in a community of missionaries. It was a school that had been set up to prepare missionaries to go different places around the world. We were all there with the same purpose, to name the name of Jesus. Some of us were going to Africa, some were staying in Europe, some were going to Haiti, different places in the world. And as I've done in every community that I've been a part of, I started an early morning prayer time. I realized that a gathering of people like that, that the enemy would want to poke at us. And the truth of the matter is many people who went to that school in the past never made it to the field because their marriages or kids' sickness or other things happened while they were there. I didn't want it to happen on my watch. And so I gathered people together from multiple nominations. Some were charismatic, some were high church, some were like me, didn't know who we were, we were just praying. In the middle of the year, our twins were going to a co-maternelle. Our little son, Jordan, was in the nursery all day long. All kinds of havoc started to break out in the nursery. It's just like a one-day switch. Kids would come home with bite marks on their arms. You'd go by there and you'd hear wailing during the day. What had been a place of peace and kids playing had just become total misery. And I suggested to our prayer group, maybe there's something spiritually happening. Maybe this isn't something we can explain away naturally, but we need to take our spiritual authority. Well, we were in a school that really was kind of a cessationist theology, and they wouldn't have understand us going and praying that darkness would not have space in the nursery. So we knew where they hid the key. Now, I don't know where this falls in authority structures, but... As parents of these children, we decided that we were going to go and anoint every door and every window and declare that darkness was not welcome there and that it would only be a place of light. While we were there, there was a person who had a prophetic vision and saw a demon of death and a demon of suicide. We sent those demons away and we declared that a sanctuary. We did not tell anyone. Everything changed that day. At Friday Chapel, the French woman who ran the nursery wanted to give a testimony. We would sing French songs and have a devotional. And she said, uh, I just want to share something. She said, last week was the worst week I've ever had in doing this ministry. I was ready to quit. I was done. I, I thought there was something wrong with me. And she said, strangest thing happened. Wednesday morning, it all went away. We kind of looked at each other. Now, it could have been a coincidence. Or maybe it was the brothers and sisters of Christus Victor saying, darkness is not going to have his place. Christ is greater than the devil. Every power and authority is underneath his feet. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That means every power and authority is underneath your feet if you are in Christ. 
So live that way. Amen.